The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Zion Primitive Baptist Church in Zion, Alabama. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com. By way of uh, background, we need to understand a few things about the book of Job. First of all, the book of Job, according to scholars, is the oldest book in the Bible. It's the oldest written book. Now, it does not deal with the oldest events of time. Genesis deals with that. But Genesis, according to the historians, was written later by Moses. Job was written first and deals with a specific event that occurred in Job's day. Again, Genesis obviously deals with the oldest things of the Bible, but it was written later. Now, all these books in the Bible, we believe, are the inspired Word of God. But the, the thing about Job that is so interesting to me and ought to be interesting to us is that it's the, it's the oldest known account. It's the oldest, it's the first account of a man's relationship with Jehovah God. Now, you know, as I said, don't, don't get confused. Genesis deals with the creation and all the things from then on up, and it's accurate. There's nothing inaccurate about it, but Job is a book. Job is a book that is entirely devoted to one man and his friends and God and their interaction. And, and it's a very important book, and the reason it's important is, is because if, if we misunderstand the book of Job, we can very easily misunderstand the nature of God himself. The book of Job is taught in many ways out in the denominational world. And I'm sorry to say most of those ways are, are not accurate. They're not applying Job. They make God be the afflictor of God's children. They make him be the one who's causing suffering. And I want to say to you that based on the true understanding of the book of Job, we're going to learn something a whole lot different about God than that, and a whole lot better. <laughs> Let me just go ahead and give you the cheat sheet. God is not the cause of Job's suffering. We're going to see that as we go through it. There's a whole other entity out there that causes his suffering, and his name is Satan, which means the adversary, but we'll come back to that. Now, another thing I said Wednesday night that I want to repeat tonight is that one thing about Job that we need to remember, it certainly contains a lot of suffering and a lot of struggles and all that, but the book of Job is not primarily a book about Job's suffering. See, Job's problem is not so much physical and, uh, and material, you know, losing his health and losing his wealth, but it's primarily theological, it deals with the nature of God himself and the view that Job has and that we, by proxy, have of, of the nature of God. It's, it's, I said the other night, I, I think I need to say it again, I hope you understand, though, it's also not a fictional account. It's a true account. Job was a real person. This really happened. You can look sometime over to the 14th chapter of Ezekiel, about the 14th verse. God names three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, and he names them in a sense that you know they have to be real. Over in the book of James, we read about the suffering of Job, and the, or the patience of Job, rather. He's a real person. And as I said earlier, the book of Job is not a book about God afflicting Job. I want to make that clear as I can make it throughout this whole uh, series if we do one on the book of Job. The one who afflicts Job 
is Satan. The one who causes Job problems is Satan, the adversary, the devil, not God. So, I also want to direct your attention, keep your finger in the book of Job, but turn with me over to the book of James, the fifth chapter. And sometimes we ask the question, what is Job all about? What is the book of Job all about? Well, I think we can find it. You know, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. The best interpreter of a book of the Bible is the Bible itself. And here we find the writer James, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaking of some problems in life. He, 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 he starts in verse 8. He says, be ye also, I'm sorry, back 7, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Now, now I want to just stop there. That's a whole message in and of itself. You know, we get patient. We, we get impatient. We get impatient in life, right? But sometimes we're proud of ourselves because we're, we're patient. We think we're patient. You know, somebody did us wrong. Well, I'm just going to wait until the Lord takes care of him. <laughs> I'm going to wait till his fortunes fail and vengeance comes upon him. But you know, God says that's not what we're to be waiting for. We're not to be waiting for some event in this life to occur to right all the wrongs of life. Because if you're waiting for that, it's never going to happen. You're going to be waiting forever because this life does not. You know, I told my kids so often when they were kids, they were young, something would happen at school. Maybe, you know, a teacher would treat them wrong. They would, they would, they would misunderstand. They would misperceive something they did, or maybe they just weren't treated fair. But you know what my message to them was? It wasn't to run down there and jump on the teacher. It was to say, kids, listen, life is not fair. If you're looking for fair, if you're looking for justice, if you're looking for the scales to balance out in this life, it will not do it. That's, our hope is not in this life. Our hope is not in this world. We're not expecting everything. You know, we're not, we're not counting up in one column the good things and in the other column the bad things and expecting them to balance out at the end of our lives. Most likely, at the end of our lives, if we look just from birth until death, the bad things are going to outweigh the good things. The injustices are going to outweigh the justices. But I'll tell you, beloved, praise God, our hope is not in this life. He didn't say, be patient until these things all work out. He said, no, be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. You know what the great hope of every child of God is? It's not that the stock market will rise. It's not that the election will go your way. It's not that those who are guilty will be punished. It's not that those who are innocent will be cleared. It is that the Lord is coming back. We are looking for that day. That's what we're to be patient unto. We're not to be patient. You know, I, I've, I've had the experience before say, well, I've been patient, Lord, but it still hasn't worked out. Well, you had not been patient long enough, you know. One day the Lord is coming back and he will set all things right. He will set all things in their proper place. You see, it's our patience unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye, in other, in other words, in other words a, a farmer doesn't go out and plant a seed 
and then stand there impatiently tapping his foot the day he planted it to wait to see, well, why is it not coming up yet? <laughs> why is it not coming up yet? I, I, I planted this thing today. I planted this corn, uh, this corn seed yesterday, and it's still not coming up. If you're doing that, you're going to be a very frustrated farmer. You can't be a farmer if you're an impatient person. Let me tell you, it, it's, it, it taxes you. It taxes your, 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 your stress level will go up. You've got to be patient because things don't work out just like that. The husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit. He puts in the time. He has long patience for it, you see. And he says like that in verse 8, Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. That's what we're waiting on. And he goes on to say, Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. In other words, don't be mad at each other. Get over it. <laughs> Get over yourself. Don't be don't be fussing and fighting all the time for the judge standeth before the door and that's i don't believe that's talking primarily about uh god's fixing to uh, render his wrath on you if you don't act right what i believe that's talking about is still pointing us to the second coming of the lord jesus christ he's saying don't be angry with one another grudge not against one another brethren lest you be condemned behold the judge standeth before the door in other words jesus is just waiting till the lord till his father says go to come back the judge, the righteous judge, my righteous judge. You know that song we sing, when thou my righteous judge appears. I look forward to the day when the righteous judge appears and he sets all things straight. And then he goes on in verses 10 and 11. This is what I really wanted to get to. Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Behold, we count them happy which endure. That word happy is the word that's translated blessed in the Beatitudes. Blessed. It doesn't mean you're going around with a smile on your face and everything's working out for you. It means you're blessed in the midst of troubles. In the midst of the trial, he says, we count them happy which endure. Now listen to this. Ye have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now, I read all that to get to this verse. Because I think there's two things in this verse that tell us, that this, that this verse tells us, that are very important about the book of Job. And in fact, it's two themes in the book of Job. And there's a third theme, at least, I think, that we're going to talk about. But there's two themes in the book of Job, and that is patience and, and pity. Patience and pity. The patience of Job. And that word patience means keeping on, keeping on. That's what that means. And, you know, not sitting down, not rolling over and going to sleep. That means keeping on, keeping on. But notice the ultimate, the ultimate description of what the Lord is doing in the book of Job. That the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. You see, if you, t if you take away from the book of Job... An idea that God is somehow arbitrary or angry or, or somehow oppressive in the way he deals with Job. And many people look at it that way. Uh, I mean, I've heard it, people say, I don't like the book of Job because I don't like what God did to Job. Well, if you've got that attitude and that understanding of the book of Job, you've missed the boat. You've missed the theme. You've missed the point. The summation of the book of Job is found right here in James. James says it's about the patience of Job and the pity of God. God is the end of the Lord. We've seen through Job the end of the Lord that he is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Now, now let me stop there and just say this. 
You say, well, I know situations like Job's. And I know that ultimately Job ends up coming out of the troubles and coming out of the trials and he's blessed more at the end than he was at the beginning. But I know people that didn't experience that kind of material blessing. Let me ask you this. Do you know any children of God that died? Do you? I do. I know a lot of them that died. You know what happens at the death of a child of God? You know what the dying day is for the child of God? It's the best day of their lives. Now listen, it's sad for us that lose them. But when I come to lay my body down and to give up my spirit uh, to the call of the Lord, it'll be the best day of my life. I can think of great days in my life. I can think of, you know, mountaintop experiences. But there's never been a mountaintop experience like the experience that my, my own father had back in January of 2020 when he breathed his last breath. My brother and I looked at each other across his dying bed and said, Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Not, hey, we miss him terribly. I miss him horribly. But let me tell you, beloved, he is in a place where I would never uh, try to get him to come back from. I always think about poor old Lazarus. <laughs> poor old Lazarus. Lazarus, he got the worst deal of anybody in the whole Bible. Probably anybody in the whole world. Old Lazarus died and was in the presence of the Lord and had to come back and die again. <laughs> I know I've told you all this. I love the story about Mr. Renzo Abrams. When he got to the point where he was on his, they thought he was on his deathbed, they'd call the family in. He was in his early 90s. And we all heard, oh, Pap's about to die, you know. Well, Pap got better. He lived a bunch more years after that. But uh, somebody came by right after he recovered and said, Mr. Renzo, we're so thankful that you recovered. And you remember his high voice. He said, Lord, I'm not. He said, I just got to go through it all again, <laughs> you know. And that's the truth. You think about it. He had gotten prepared. He got in his mind ready to see Jesus. And then he had to, he had to go through it all again. Poor old Lazarus had it worse than Pap. <laughs> now, he had it worse than Mr. Renzo. He had to come back and he had to die again. Man, I tell you, beloved, when, 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 when I lay this old body down, don't call me out of the grave. I don't want anybody to resuscitate me. I want to be with my Lord. Now, I, don't get me wrong. I want to be here as long as the Lord will bless me to be able to be of benefit to his kingdom, to my family, to my community. I want to be here. I want to live as long as, as, as I can. But I tell you, beloved, the day I die will be the best day of my life. See, the end of the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. In other words, He pities us. And there are times He pities us so much that He doesn't let us stay here in this sin-cursed world. I don't look at the death of some young person or some, you know, sometimes we, we hear of tragedies. This young person who died, this young lady who died over at Rocky Mount Church, it's a sad thing for her family. And it's a tragedy as we look at it. But the truth of the matter is, that young person, I'm 54 years old. She was about 22 years old. I'm still waiting to see my Savior. And she's already seen Him. <laughs> she's already in His presence. Oh my, how I envy that young person that passes from this life. I know it's a tragedy. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not promoting uh, rejoicing when someone dies. But I tell you this, I am promoting not sorrowing as the world sorrows with no hope. Because the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. And that's one of the main themes of this book of Job. If you come away with anything else, you've missed a great deal of the message. 
There's one other thing. Now, now look, I don't pretend to have all the answers about Job either. Let me just go ahead and make that disclaimer. I can't describe and explain every detail of the book of Job, just like I can't describe and explain every detail of all the theological points in the scriptures. But I do believe there's at least one other theme in the book of Job that we, we discussed Wednesday night, and that is the theme of pride. And that theme is twofold. First of all, God is proud of his children. And God can have pride and it not be wrong because he's God. God is proud of his children when they're faithful. He's proud of Job, as we see in this book. God delights in the faithfulness of his servants. We're going to see something in a minute here when we get into the book, how that God does point out to the adversary, the devil, the faithfulness of Job. He points out that Job is an upright and a just and a righteous man. Now, now we know that Job's not sinlessly perfect. In fact, as we get into the book of Job, we'll see that Job has some problems. He's Primarily, his problems are some pride. But, but Job was the greatest of all the men of the East in that time, and apparently he was, according to God himself, there was none greater than him. He was a, there's none like him in the earth. He was the most righteous man in his living and the way he lived on the earth. God delights in the faithfulness of his service. I just want to read you. You don't have to turn there. If you take notes, you can write these down. But listen to this, just to, to back that up. Psalm 147 and verse 11. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, in those that hope in his mercy. Now, I know that you and I are worms of the dust. I know in our human nature there's nothing good. I know there's none good. No, not one. I know that in our flesh, as Paul said, there dwelleth no good thing. But he's talking about his children who have been born of the Spirit, who have a new nature, and now can serve him. He delights when they do serve him. He likes it. He, he takes pleasure, it says, in them that fear him. Proverbs 11 and verse 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. You notice we talk about the, the false balance a lot, but what about the just balance? The just weight, in other words, the person who deals truthfully with others out there, even to his own hurt and his own detriment, God delights in that. Proverbs eleven twenty: They that are of a froward heart are abomination to the Lord, but such as are upright in their way are His delight. Over in the book of Deuteronomy, we're told that the that the Lord's portion is his people and Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. You know, we think often about how much we love God and how much we ought to love him for what he's done for us. But have you thought about how much he loved us? Have you thought about how much he delights in us? Think about your own children. Think about those of you that have loved ones, the, the closest relationship you have to anyone in this earth. And then multiply that exponentially beyond calculation because that's how much more God loves you than you love anyone around you. You know, my mama loves me. Y'all know that. My mama loves me, and I'm thankful that my mother loves me. But she doesn't have a, she can't touch the love of God. God loves me so much more than she does. It's hard to even fathom. 
It's so much so that we sing a song that tells us that uh, he'll not dwell in heaven and leave me behind. See, we're the lot of his inheritance. He delights in those. And when we do right, he delights in us. Proverbs 12, 22, lying lips are abomination to the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight. <laughs> Proverbs 15, 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But listen to this. I love this. The prayer of the upright is his delight. You know what that tells me? If, if, some of you may have children that have moved off. They don't live at home anymore. We, we're that way. We have, still have Mason at home, but the others uh, move off have moved off and you know there's just nothing like getting a phone call from one of your children is there there's just nothing like talking to one of your loved ones who you hadn't seen in a while you know what this tells me God loves to talk to his children the prayer what is prayer it's just talking to God it's bringing your supplications before him the prayer of the upright is his delight he loves to hear us come to him in prayer. He loves to talk to us. God is proud of Job in the sense that he delights in him as one of his elect children who is serving him in the right way. And this aspect of pride is appropriate. God is, is, is always a, a right in everything he does. And when he's proud of his children, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. And, uh, and, and I believe God delights in his children when they serve him in the right way. But there's another aspect to this theme of pride that runs through Job, and that is the idea that Job himself was prideful, and his friends were certainly prideful. There was a lot of self-righteousness in the religious worship of that day, apparently, and, and it comes out in Job, and we're going to see that later on as we go through this book. I don't want to deal with it this morning, but, uh, but this is a theme uh, that we need to, need to remember. So, with that, with that background, and I know we've taken a quite a bit of time on background, I want us to move into the book of Job. Remember, the themes are the patience of Job, the pity of the Lord, and the pride of God, and that the Lord delights in the faithfulness of his children. And finally also, that Job, as good as he was, was a sinner and had issues with pride. Keep those, keep those in mind as we look into this book. In chapter 1 of Job, in verse 1, we read, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses in a very great household so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, every one in his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to come eat and drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Now here we have in the first five verses a situation that Job could see. This is what he had visible to him. This is what he knew was going on around him. This is all that Job could see. We're going to get to the situation in a minute that Job couldn't see, where God is, the, uh, uh, is there, and, and it's invisible, and it's not something that he could see. But Job, is, look, Job sees this situation. 
And we see from this, these verses that Job was a good man, as I've already said. We're told he was perfect, which doesn't mean perfectly without sin, but it means whole or complete. Filled, it even has a, an implication of being filled with integrity. And what it means is, is that Job had, was a, a growing, uh, spiritually mature child of God. He was spiritually mature. You know, one of the prayers I have for our church is certainly that we would grow in numbers. We, we certainly want that. But more than that, I want you to grow in spirit and spiritual understanding. I want you to grow spiritually. I want you to grow in grace and knowledge of the truth. If you're not growing in grace and knowledge of the truth, then it's, why would the Lord trust us with sending any more of his children this way? We need to be growing like Job. Job was perfect. He was filled with integrity. He was not sinless, as I said, but he was a complete, he was, he was a complete man. Notice it said he was upright. Upright simply means straight. He's straight. He's not a crooked man. He's a straight man. Job was the real deal, as I think I've already said. Job was the real deal. And we're told that he eschewed evil. That literally means to turn off. <laughs> He, he turned it off. You know, it's like a water spigot. He turned it off. He was tired of evil. He didn't, he turned it off. He, he departed from it figuratively. He avoided it. He turned aside from it, as the proverb writer says we should do. Now, he wasn't perfect, as I said, but in general, the, the trajectory of his life was in an upward uh, motion. He was growing in grace and knowledge of God. And then it, notice he also had a great fortune. In verses 2 and 3, we read about his children and his sheep and his oxen and his cattle and his, all the things that he had there. By any measure, he was rich. He was rich. And, you know, Job wasn't somebody who apparently squandered it on himself. Just flip over quickly to the 29th chapter uh, of Job. And, and you're going to see in Job's speaking here, uh, Job is the one that's talking in the 29th chapter. And... In verse 12, he says, uh, uh, notice what he says, I delivered the poor that cried and the fatherless and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness uh, and it clothed me. He said, verse 15, I was eyes to the blind and feet was I to the lame. In verse 16, I was a father to the poor and the cause which I knew not I searched out. In other words, Job didn't just squander all his riches on himself. Job took care of others. Job loved other people. He did that which was right in the sight of God. You know, I, I, I would love to be rich. I know the Lord probably never blessed me to be rich because he knew I couldn't handle it. But, but if I, if it's not wrong to be rich. It's okay to be rich as long as you're not rich for yourself. And Job was that way. He, he didn't just squander it on himself. He, he took care of others. And Job also, notice, had a good family. They were apparently were very close-knit. He had, he had seven sons and three daughters. And verse 4 says, The sons went and feasted in their houses, every one his day. Now, I don't know if that meant each day of the week, a different night, they got together at a different son's house. Or if it means on their birthday, his day. I don't know what that means. But I just know regularly the family got together. And they loved each other, and they sent for their sisters to come as well. They didn't, just, they didn't want to leave anybody out. They were a close, loving family. And Job loved them, and because he loved them, and because he loved God, notice in verse 5 it says that he, he continually would, would offer a burnt offering for each one of them 
For he said in the end of verse 5 there, it may be that they have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. <laughs> you know, I think I said Wednesday night that the equivalent of that today, we don't make sacrifices anymore, but the equivalent of that today is a mama or a daddy getting on their knees every night and praying for their children making that sacrifice of prayer, getting on their knees and praying. You know, I, don't, I pray for my children. I hope they've been living right. Lord, if they haven't, forgive them. Lord, bless them with health. Bless them with uh, the, the things of this world that they need to get by. And Lord, help them to serve you better. See, he wasn't also just praying for uh, increase in wealth. He's here. He wasn't saying, Lord, make them great men. Make them great people and rich. He was saying, Lord, I hope they haven't offended you. But if they have... Please take my prayer as an intercessory prayer for them. See, they were, he was concerned about their spiritual welfare, about their spiritual growth. And it says, thus did Job continually. Job was faithful in what he was doing. Job was faithfully seeking the Lord. And that's an important point to remember. Notice as we go through this, this book here, just notice as you read this book of Job that the things that happen to him don't happen to him because of something bad that he's done. Now, now one little caveat here. As I've said already, we're going to find Job wasn't perfect. Job had some pride issues, clearly, in his life. And, and we'll talk about why the Lord uh, moved the hedge, so to speak. But, uh, and, and possibly that's one of the reasons is, is, is there's, no better, there's no better lesson on pride than the crucible of suffering. When you get into the suffering of this life, it's hard to be prideful. But, but be that as it may, these things that happen, it's not something that's occurring to him because of something bad he's done, you see. He wasn't sinlessly perfect, but he wasn't doing things that ought to result in this kind of suffering. So, so this is the situation Job could see. Now, I want to turn for the rest of our time uh, to the situation Job could not see. The situation Job could not see. And before we begin reading, let me just remind you of this. In every situation you find yourself in in life, there are things you can see, but there's also things you can't see. There's things you know not of that are occurring. And sometimes those things are good things, sometimes they're, they're bad things, so to speak. You know, there's a spirit world out there. We're going to see that here in just a minute. There's a spirit world. There, did you know there are spirits here today? In our worship service, we're told angels observe our worship services. The scripture tells us there is a spirit world. There were demons that were possessing people in Jesus' day, and Jesus cast them out. Nobody here could see them, but Jesus could. Nobody with a natural eye could see them, but the Lord could. And, and the same thing today, beloved, I still believe in a spirit world out there. So let's begin reading in verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Now I want to stop there and look at the setting in the sons of God here. Most people, this is where I take issue with a lot of the teaching out there on the book of Job. Most people in the world that teach on the book of Job, teach that this is heaven and that the sons of God are angels and that Satan came into heaven in the presence of the throne room of God and these angels and had this interaction with God. 
I do not believe that that's the case. I do not believe. The, the, I, I, I didn't bring it with me, but Wednesday night I, I mentioned, I believe it's uh, five times in the Old Testament the phrase sons of God appears. And only one time, I believe, it refers to angels. Only one time. It's, it's, it's mentioned twice over in, or th uh, three times, I believe it is, over in the sixth chapter of Genesis. The sons of God went in under the daughters of men, and they had children. And, and you know, eventually this, uh, the world was uh, overrun by the flood because of the wickedness there. And that's referring to children of God. You know, sons of God, if you go, if you go back over to uh, in the third chapter of uh, uh, of the book of Luke, uh, he starts off there talking about uh, uh, the, the genealogy. Verse 23 says, Jesus himself began to be 30 years of age, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, which was the son of Method, and he goes on and on and on and on, the son of son of son of so-and-so each time. And finally gets down to verse 38, and he's gotten to the end of the genealogy. He says, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Adam was called a, the son of God. Now, he's not the only begotten son of God. Did you know you and I are called sons of God? Did you know that? We're, we're sons of God. That phrase is not used always to refer to angels. In fact, only one time, and it's in the book of Job, and we'll get to it, but uh, over in the 38th chapter, I believe the Lord speaking there is referring to angels who were shouting for joy in the creation. But in general, it's talking about children of God. It's, and, and the connection, by the way, is that the angels are created as well as man was created. <laughs> so, so that's why you can call them both sons of God. What this is, beloved, is it, I do not believe this is heaven, okay? Most say it is, but it, it can't be. In Luke, that 10th chapter and 18th verse, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Sometime in time immemorial past, when Jesus, the pre-incarnate Jesus, saw Satan cast out of heaven. And Lucifer, we're told, and Isaiah has, been fall, has fallen from heaven. There is nothing that will ever go into the presence of God in the throne room of God in heaven that will defile. You can read the book of Revelation about that. Nothing that defiles, nothing that's sinful or sin-cursed will go into his presence. You see, this can't be heaven and by the way, another reason it can't be heaven is it says there was a day. <laughs> well, you might say, well, this is the eternal day. No, there's going to be another day over in the second chapter here. There's no time in heaven. There's no eternal, there's no passage of time up there. Uh, time is a, is a temporal thing. <laughs> well, literally, that, that's what that means. But, uh, but yeah, time is an earthly thing. Time passes here. Time doesn't pass in heaven. So there's not a day in heaven here and a day in heaven there, you see. This is a, and these sons of God are children of God, probably Job's children and Job, come together in a worship service. Notice what it did. It says they came to present themselves before the Lord. Isn't that what we're doing today? I hope that's what we're doing today. I hope you're here to present yourself before the Lord. I'm not presenting myself before you, even though I'm up here preaching in front of you. I'm presenting myself before the Lord. This is a worship service. And that tells us something important. It tells us that God observes our worship service. You know, over in the book of Malachi, I believe it is, he talks about those people that, uh, that spake to one another often. And you know what he did? He wrote a book of remembrance about them. 
When we get together, God is observing our, our proceedings here. You know, some people believe you go to church to see a performance. Either some choir or some band or some preacher gets up and performs for you. Let me tell you, church is a performance, but you are the performers. We are the performers. We're performing before God. God is looking at us. God is the audience. Not, I'm not the entertainer and you're the audience. If you come to church to be entertained, uh, first of all, uh, you're going to be sadly disappointed because I'm not much of an entertainer, but, but also you've come for the wrong reason. We are here to entertain God. We are here to perform for God. And you know, He loves when we get together and we love one another and we love on one another. And we show love to one another and we worship Him who is the Creator and the Savior and the one who deserves our praise. They came to present themselves before the Lord and the Lord was there, but notice something else. Satan was also there. Now, before you get terrified and run screaming, I hate to tell you, but Satan and or his minions, I, Satan's not like God. He's not everywhere present and nowhere absent. But he has a lot of demons. He has a lot of servants out there. And I guarantee you in every worship service that's occurring in one of the true churches of God, Satan or one of his minions is there. You know what that tells me? That tells me even at church, we better be very careful. Oh, my. Brother Mackie and I have talked before about uh, how much sometimes I just get, I get nervous and, and dread a business meeting. <laughs> Not really with you all, but, uh, but there have been, hey, there have been times, though, when I did. I, when we were thinking about what we were going to do here, what, were we going to build this building? Were we going to renovate that building? Were we going to build another fellowship hall? And I knew there were four or five different, uh, different ways of thinking out there. Two or three people wanted to do this, and two or three wanted to do that, and four or five wanted to do the other. I said, I told she I prayed and prayed and prayed before that meeting because I said, Lord, please don't split us up. You know, I'm not worried about doctrinal errors coming into the church. I'm really not worried about somebody coming in here and teaching that it's salvation's in your hands rather than completed by God. What I'm worried about is the color of the carpet. <laughs> That's what will split a church up more than anything else, the color of the walls, you know. Somebody wants pink walls somebody wants gray walls somebody wants now I don't like pink walls let me just say that but uh, I wouldn't I still wouldn't be mad if that's what the majority wanted to do I'd still come to church but uh, but I'm telling you that's the kind of thing that we got to be careful about we got to be careful about how we talk to one another and how we deal with one another especially when conducting the business of the church because Satan is here just like he was there and notice I want, I want to talk about Satan for just a minute Notice what he says here. Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? That's a good question, isn't it? Where does Satan come from? I don't mean his origin, but where is he? If he's here today, where was he yesterday? Where's he going from here? Well, it tells us here, Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth and from walking up and down in it. Now, the name Satan in Hebrew literally means the adversary, the opponent. Satan is the contrary one. He's contrary unto us. He's, he's an adversary to God and to his kingdom and to his people. In the, in the New Testament, uh, the word devil is used a lot to, to define Satan. And that's the Greek word diabolos, 
which we get our word diabolical from, which means a slanderer or a false accuser or someone who is deceitfully trying to lead God's people astray. Well, he really plays his part here, doesn't he? Notice, notice also, <laughs> he's been going to and fro in the earth. He, he's, he's got free access. He's going up and down and to and fro in the earth, especially in that day, he had free access to pretty much everywhere, including the worship service of God. And I tell you, 1 Peter 5 and 8 tells us about what he's doing today. He's a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. That's, that's, that's the devil. That's this Satan. That's what he's doing. And that's, he is really playing his part here, is he not? Because notice what he says next as we kind of bring this to a close. Verse 7, the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? Now, I want to stop there just for a second. And I want you to notice something I hope you picked up in the reading of this. There is no hint of animosity or meanness or mean-spiritedness here in this statement of God, is there? Many people who read the book of Job think, why did God do that to Job? Well, let me tell you, this tells you a little bit about the heart of God right here. God has looked upon Job. Notice the struggle that's about to begin here, the struggle that's about to begin between, between Satan and God in a sense. God sets out to praise Job. He says, it's like a father beaming. It's like a father proud of his son. God sees the uprightness of Job, and is, he's, in a sense, he's bragging about Job. He's saying, Satan, look at Job. Have you considered him? There is none like him in the earth. He is, he is the one on the earth as we speak here today who is serving me better than anybody else now now let's don't don't forget as i said to start this message that job is but a worm of the earth job in his natural man wouldn't receive the things of the spirit of god for their foolishness unto him neither could he know them for they're spiritually discerned first corinthians 2 14 tells us that so what it tells us first and foremost about job is that job is a redeemed child of God. Job is a regenerated child of God. He has that spirit within him that allows him to be able to be in tune with the Almighty. If you don't have the spirit, if you haven't been born again, you don't have a spirit. You don't, it's kind of like the radio tuners. You know, Right now, as we stand here, there's all kinds of radio and TV waves. You could be watching... HBO and Cinemax right now, if I, just had a, if I just had a tuner on that I could hold up for you and a TV right here in front of me, you could be watching it because those, those, those waves are passing through this church. But you know the reason we don't have it going on right now? We don't have a tuner in here that can pick it up. We don't have a receiver that can get those waves. Well, guess what? The, the Spirit of God's like that. If you don't have 
a tuner, if you don't have a receiver within you to pick up on the Spirit of God, you're not interested in things of the Spirit. The man who's dead in trespasses and in sins, the man who's born only in nature, never been born again, he, is, uh, he has not got the ability to praise God or to serve Him like Job. So Job was a redeemed and regenerated child of God. But once we are born again, we are regenerated. We have the ability to serve Him like Job. And God says to Satan... <laughs> Have you looked at him? Have you considered? It's like God is, not, God is not being mean. He's not being devious. He's proud, like a father's proud of his son. In Isaiah 66 and verse 2, we're told, To this man will I look. This is God speaking. To this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. This clearly describes Job, or God wouldn't be looking to him. God's looking to this man. And notice that God's pronouncement of his character is accurate. Everything God says is true. Now, remember this. Everything God says is true. From this point on, in the first two chapters of Job and in the last chapter of Job, we have a third-person account of the events that are happening. But beginning in chapter 3, every chapter, is, there's a speaker. It starts out with uh, Job says this or Eliphaz says that. And so when you read the book of Job, you have to filter it through who the speaker is. But when you get over to the 38th chapter of the book of Job, God is speaking. And when God speaks, you can rely on everything he says. You can't, you can't uh, everything that Eliphaz says, everything that Elihu says is not necessarily accurate. It's accurately recorded, but it's not necessarily true doctrine. You can't just go to Job and pull a verse out here and a verse out there and, and build, a build a doctrine, build a theology on it. You've got to filter it through who's talking. But notice here, God is talking. And this is the true and correct viewpoint. God is out to praise Job. And that makes sense. That's consistent with other places in the scripture. Over in Psalms, the 147th chapter and the 11th verse, listen to what he says. Listen to what God's, the, the psalmist writes here. Psalm 147, verse 11. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him and those that hope in his mercy. <laughs> Isn't that great? Over in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, I believe it is, and uh, in verse 6. 1 Peter 1 and verse 6. Wherein, wherein you greatly rejoice. He's talking, about, he's talking about struggles here. Wherein you greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. But notice this, verse 7, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. In other words, God takes, as we said earlier, God takes pleasure. He delights in the faithfulness of his servants. You remember when he came to Abraham in the 18th chapter? He came to Abraham and and told Abraham, you're about to have a son that you didn't think you could have. In fact, physically you're not able to, but I'm going to bless you. And then he stands there, the three, the three entities that show up, I believe it was God himself, stands there and communes with himself and says, shall we withhold from Abraham that which we're about to do? They turned and looked towards Sodom, you see. They're fixing to go destroy Sodom. And he says this about Abraham, so I know him. I know Abraham. He's going to instruct his children 
in the right way to go. He's going to be faithful to me. And I'm paraphrasing. You can turn and read it. So, so let's share with him what we're going to do. You know, that, that's, a, that's a statement of God about how much he loved the faithfulness of Abraham. Do you know he loves our faithfulness today? Do you know he loves and delights in us being faithful today? I hope I never experience the troubles that Job experiences. I hope that I never have to endure the harshness that he endured. But I hope if I do, that I'll be faithful and patient like him. We're going to keep reading and, and see that God says, if you consider Job, the devil says, oh yeah, I've considered him. Many people falsely claim that God brought Job to the devil's attention. But the truth of the matter is the devil knew all about Job already. He said, I've been trying to get to him, but you've got a hedge around him, God. You've got a hedge that protects him, and he, he, is, he loves you, but he loves you because you pay him to love him. You know, that's another thing that the devil can't understand. He cannot fathom that anyone would love God apart from what they can get out of God. You ever had a friend that was only your friend because of what you could do for him? Kind of like the prodigal son when he went out into the uh, world and he began to spend his father's inheritance. Eventually the inheritance was depleted and his friends all left him. You know why? Because they weren't really his friends. But you see, God knew that Job loved God not because of what God was given Job, but because of what God had given Job in his eternal salvation. We'll see that as we continue. But I hope that this study of the book of Job will help us to understand the nature of God and how he is merciful and pitiful unto his children. We thank you for listening to today's message. For more information, please visit us online at zionpbc.com.